This morning we are continuing our series, Simple Prayers. And so if you are joining us, we kicked off this year uh, talking about some simple prayers, ways that you and I can engage the Lord throughout our day. Now these simple prayers are not made to replace your normal rhythms of prayer. They're not uh, your standalone and only place, right? But they are kind of supplements to our prayer life, right? And so in week one, we talked about praying a prayer of protection over our lives. Pastor Chuck unpacked what it meant to pray for a hedge of protection around our lives and over the situations that we're facing. And last week, we walked through a simple but dangerous prayer of availability. Lord, I'm listening and I'm available. How many of y'all are like me that you prayed the first half of that real well this week? Lord, I am listening and I'm available. Right? Like, Lord, slide into those DMs, shoot me a text, but there's weird people in this Starbucks. Please don't tell me to do anything, right? Like that's, it's real life. We're just, be honest, we're at church, all right? So I, I gotta be uh, honest, that was me. Like that's a dangerous prayer. This week, I, I wish I got an easy one for you, but this is also a prayer that's going to be challenging because this week we're gonna talk about a simple prayer of trust. Simple prayer of trust. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. There's an author named E.M. Bounds. And E.M. Bounds is probably one of the most prolific writers uh, on the subject of prayer. And he has this just powerful quote about prayer. He says that prayer is far-reaching in its influence and worldwide in its effects. It affects all men, affects them everywhere, and affects them in all things. It touches men's interest in time and eternity. It lays hold upon God and moves him to interfere in the affairs of earth. I love that. It moves the angels to minister to men in this life. It restrains and defeats the devil in his schemes to ruin man. Prayer goes everywhere and lays its hand upon everything. Prayer affects everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful that this morning you did what you have promised you would always do, and that is that where your people would gather, you would be in the midst of it. And so, Lord, we're so grateful for your presence this morning, we're grateful for the miracles that you're already working in lives. Lord, we're also grateful that you're going to do what you promised to do, which is to lead and guide us into all truth. And so as we open up your word, we just pray, Father, that you would use your scripture to speak to our stories individually. God, that it would lead and guide us as a faith family, but individually in our hearts and our stories and our situations, Lord, you would speak to us. And God, we pray like your disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to be men and women of prayer. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I just want to highlight, like we talked about in the announcement video, that uh, we are in the midst of our 21 days of fast and focus. And so if you're just joining us and you want to join us for the last seven days of this journey, you can get all those resources on the Church Center app, or you can go to tpcconline.com and get them there as well. I made the great and dumb decision to fast social media. I'm going to share a little bit of my millennialness here for a second, Okay. I texted my wife a couple days ago and I was like, I had no idea. And the fact that you can go on a social media detox is a disgusting thing. The fact that there is such a thing called social media detox is just like, it makes me just at myself, right? Okay, so I'm just confessing before you that like, that's one thing that I've given up in this 21 days and it's been so good. 
been so good. I've, I've like had this renewed passion for the Lord in the last couple of weeks. And so I want to invite you to finish well. The other thing I want to invite and highlight is that next Sunday night, we're going to gather as a faith family to worship God. Okay. And there is something miraculous that happens when hungry, desperate people get in a room before the Lord and declare his goodness over their stories and their situations. And so this has not always been a rhythm for us as a faith family. Pastor Chuck and I have unpacked it. I think as best we can remember in in our journey, like this is one of the first nights of worship and prayer. And so um, we're really, really excited and expectant. Our staff has been praying for the last couple of weeks, specifically for next Sunday night, that God would show up and do miraculous things. So you don't want to miss it. I'm betting it's going to be standing room only, and we're not going to have overflow. We're just going to pack it all in here and just go after the Lord together. So put that on your calendars uh, and fight your neighbor for a spot. Okay. I did a little experiment and I'm going to ask you to join me. So would you stand up for me real quick? We're not doing hot yoga or anything like that. Okay. Just want to disarm you. All right. So I want you to find a neighbor and introduce yourself. Okay. Just introduce yourself. Find somebody around you. Introduce yourself. All right. All right. All right. Just your name. EC, EC, EC. Just your name. Holy smokes. That's the difference between West Texas and the East Coast. On the East Coast, you're like, hey, introduce yourself. And they're like, hi, I'm Bob. Hi, I'm Larry. West Texas, it's like, hey, how's your mom? I saw your aunt last week. You still got the farm. Did you sell it? Give me that recipe. You never text me. How's your cat? Right? Like, that's just West Texas. All right? So here, I want you to, with your newfound friend, I want you to answer this question in one word. Say one word. The Lord's watching. One word. One word, okay? And I want you to fill in the blank. Fill in the blank question. One word. God is blank. Okay, just think for two seconds. What's your word? Here we go. To your new friend. God is, fill in the blank. Ready, set, go. Tell him your one word. Okay, one word. One word. No explanation. No why. Just one word. It's not the SATs, okay? All right, now find another partner, the person you didn't pick the first time. Find somebody else. Find a, find a number two. Pick your number two. Pick your number two. Pick your number two. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Same question, one word. God is fill in the blank. Ready, set, go. Tell him your one word. Tell him your one word. Tell him your one word. Okay, all right, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. We got things to do, places to go, people to see. God is fill in the blank, right? So I did this activity the other night with 45 guys standing around fire pits, and I asked them this question, not knowing who's in the room, right? People who know Jesus, love Jesus, people who don't. God is fill in the blank. And much like many of us, probably the the answers were reasonable, right? God is creator. God is powerful. God is distant. God is, I'm not really sure. I know it's Sunday morning and I should have an answer, but if I'm honest, I'm not really sure. God is Father. God is Creator, right? But the other night, my friend came up to me after and he said, hey, I got to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, hey, my new buddy that I just met when we did the God is thing. I said, "Uh uh-huh. He said, I got to tell you about his answer because I think we really really need to rally around this guy. I think he's really hurting. I said, okay. He said... God is, and then he filled it with multiple syllables of explicit language. Just an honest, guttural response about the character of God 
interpreted by his situations. I don't know that he knows the Lord, but what I do know is that he has a judgment about his character based on his story. And our lives are often full of the chaotic effects of sin, of living in a broken, fallen world filled with evil. And our prayer this morning is a simple prayer, but it's a response to that reality. And it is this, God, you are good and I trust you. God, you are good and I trust you. Matthew chapter seven is the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We get that from Matthew chapter five, verses one and two, where it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And what he began to teach them was how to live in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was from heaven and he was inviting his disciples into a way of life that looked very different. And so naturally he gathered them together and began to teach them. And so we call this the Sermon on the Mount. And in these three chapters, Jesus begins to unpack some very profound and powerful truths about our lives. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting and giving and our morals and how we respond to the world around us and our character and our nature. But he talks about Matthew in Matthew chapter six about prayer. It's where we get the Lord's prayer. And then in Matthew seven, just a few short verses later, he comes back to this idea of prayer and he kind of doubles down on his statements about prayer. And so in Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, it says this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So Jesus lays out some instructions about being persistent in our prayers, right? Uh, These three words right here are uh, in English, they seem like normal verbs. But in Greek, they're actually a form of verb that is an ongoing Action, meaning it's really ask and keep asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking and you will find. Knock and keep knocking and the door will be open to you. So Jesus is unpacking this truth that prayer is a, requires a persistency, right? But he tells us about prayer and he makes a promise, right? If you do these things, there, you will get them. The response is the promise fulfilled. But then Jesus in these three verses, 9, 10, and 11 tells us why we get an answer to prayer. And it's all based on the character of the Father. Jesus makes a character statement about God in these verses. He tells us that God responds to prayer based on his character, that his character forces him to respond to our prayers. And uh, the way I say this in my life and have for the last decade or so said it is I tell myself constantly that he's a good dad in a good mood that gives good gifts to his kids when they ask. So when I come to the place of prayer and I'm going like, oh man, Lord, this seems really big. I remind myself, man, he is a good dad and he's in a good mood and he gives good gifts to his kids when they ask. And so why does God respond to our prayers and why can we trust him? It's his character. He is good. And I know that that statement in this room, for some of us, we resonate. We're like, that's true, JD, I believe it. But in this room, it also creates dissonance. 
Some of us in this room go, oh, you had me at God and is, and then that last one tripped me up. Good, I don't know that he's good. And so this morning I want to unpack that word, that idea of his character, because I believe that if we can pray a simple prayer, it can have major implications in our life when it comes to the fact that God is good and we can trust him, right? A friend of mine recently introduced me to like one of my new favorite resources, okay? Now I'm a nerd, I'm warning you right now, okay? It is the 1828 An American Dictionary of the English Language written by Noah Webster. Nobody else? Okay. Noah Webster, if you don't know, was the first man to try and create definitions for the American language in the new colonies in this new country. And so Noah Webster took 28 years to write his first edition of the first English dictionary, and he supported over 70,000 words with 6,000 scriptures from the King James Bible. Because Noah Webster believed this, he believed that education is useless without the Bible. That's for free, okay? So all of his definitions, you can find this on the internet, Noah Webster's 1828 version of the Bible, or of the dictionary. Scripture and our lives and our language is really influenced by the word of God. And so I want to unpack this word good as an adjective that describes someone or something from Noah Webster's dictionary with us this morning. The first is good means to be valid, to be legally firm, not weak or defective, having strength adequate to its support. That God, because he is good, has the legal ability and strength to execute on his promises. Good means to be complete or sufficiently perfect in kind, having the physical qualities best adapted to its design and use, that God, because he is good, is complete, not lacking. Therefore, he has all the resources needed to execute his promises. Or this one, good means to have moral qualities, the qualities which God's law requires. When was the last time you saw that in a textbook? Virtuous, pious, religious, applied to persons, and opposed to bad, vicious, wicked, and evil. That God is good because there's no evil within him. His morality is unquestionable and untainted. Good means to be sound, to be perfect, uncorrupted, and undamaged. That God is good because he is perfect. Undamaged, uncorrupted. It means to be well-qualified, able, skillful, skillful, or performing, performing duties with skill and fidelity that God is good because he is qualified to be God. He is able and has all the skills needed to accomplish his plans. God is good because he is kind, benevolent, affectionate, as a good father or to have goodwill, that God is relational that he moves towards us as a loving father, or this last one, that good is kind, affectionate, faithful, as a good friend, that God is good because he's faithful. See, all of these definitions of the word good as an adjective are also the character traits of God that make us able to come to him and go, God, you are good, and I trust you. David defined it or said it this way in Psalm 145, verse 9. He said, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Or said 
In another place, in Psalm 106, verse 1, David says, Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. If we're honest, if you're like me, sometimes we can say, Oh, yeah, J.D., mentally I understand that. Mentally I can give an assent to that. Mentally, yeah, I, I got it. But there's still this tension in my life about this statement that God is good. I have my doubts. And I would tell you that it's totally normal to have doubts. And I think there are lots of different types of doubts. And this one specifically, I would define as a doubt from disorientation. Mark Maynall describes a doubt from disorientation as these doubts result from our inability to reconcile a truth about God we believe with an apparently contradictory reality we perceive especially in a context of traumatic suffering, grief, or the deep darkness of mental illness. I know God is good, but my situation feels so contradictory to that truth, right? My son and I are having some doubts from disorientation right now. My son's five years old. Like all five-year-old boys, he 100, 1,000, 110%, thousand millionth to the nth degree hates school. Those are his words, not mine, okay? hate school. And so every day I'm telling him like, hey dude, I love you. I'm for you. I want the best for you. And he's like, but you make me go to school. There's no way you're loving. You don't love me. These are statements from my son. Okay. You don't love me. He's having some doubts about the fact that I love him because I'm making him do some things that he does not understand or like. In the last few weeks, I have carried him to the car. I have carried him to his class. I have shown up to work with snot on my shirt. I have spent my drive processing my own anger. I have held the line and forced him to go. Doubts of disorientation. I don't know that he loves me. He makes me go to hell every day. <laughs> we have those. We have those. Why would a dad who loves me force me to do something I hate? And if we're honest, each and every day, we have opportunities to doubt God's goodness. It's the ploy the enemy has been using since the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, lay out this story where Satan, as the serpent, enters the garden. He enters God's creation, and he approaches God's apex of creation, man and woman, and he begins to plant seeds of doubt. He comes to Eve, and he finds her, and he says, Did God say that you would die? Did God say you couldn't eat of that tree? Did God? The subtle questioning that the enemy is using here with Eve is, if God was good, he wouldn't withhold something from you, right? If God was good, why would he give you rules? Like Satan is asking Eve some questions and they're about the character and nature of God because Satan understands that if he can get you and I to doubt the goodness of God, that he knows over time you and I will stop trusting him. 
God, I don't know that you're good. And so therefore, like, I don't know that I can really trust you with my marriage. God, I think you're good and you can help me with the church thing, but I just don't know that you can help me with my business. God, I I think you're probably good with those people, but I can't trust you with my kids. God, you are good and I trust you. I learned a lesson a long, long time ago that trust is only as powerful as the object of your trust. Trust is only as powerful as the object of your trust. Now, I'm a, uh, most of you don't know me very well, and that's probably a good thing for you. Um, but I grew up with a crazy dad, crazy dad that loved risk and adventure. And so when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, my dad was working on the weekends at a summer camp. Um, and so we would load up on the weekends and we'd go to this summer camp where specifically we would help facilitate groups going through a challenge course, right? Anybody ever seen those? They're made out of telephone poles. They got wires. Idiots get out there. They sign their life away to try and figure out if they've got trust issues. Like, yes, we all have trust issues, especially at 40 feet in the air. It's just a thing, right? But my dad thought it would be great to take me every weekend and get me to jump off of telephone poles. So like as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, like most kids are, you know, learning how to ride bikes and have fun. And my dad's like, you know what would be great this weekend? Let's go jump off a pole. I'm like, yeah, dad, that sounds great. So what happened is like, I just grew up loving safe risks. Safe risks. I love adventure. My wife and I went on a date, like we were dating. We went skydiving. Like I've been four or five times. Like I love it. I back, back, uh, country snowboarding. I'm your, I'm your huckleberry, right? Like jumping off of things, climbing high walls. I, I am your guy, but I take safe risks, right? So if I told you like, hey, let's go climb a mountain together and we took the right ropes, the right gear, the right harnesses designed for said activities, my level of fear is really low. Because my trust is in what I know to be true about this gear. That I've done some really dumb things and not died. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm the guy that, like, when people would show up to these ropes courses, they'd be like, we're going to do what? And the other instructors are like, don't look at JD because he's up there upside down, tying his shoes, goofing off. Like, I'm that guy. But if you came to me and you were like, JD, you love risk, you love adventure, I found this rope in my grandpa's barn. I'm out. I'm out. But JD, like, it's a good rope. It's only frayed in a couple of places. It's only 50 years old. It'll be fine. No, it won't. You're going to (laughs) die. My trust is really low in your rope because I doubt its ability to do what you're asking of it to do. My trust is really high when the equipment's right. See, when you and I fail to remind ourselves or lean in and know and remind ourselves of the character and nature of God, that he is good. He is trustworthy. He can be trusted. The object of our trust strengthens. 
the understanding of who God is, his majesty, his awe, his wonder, the more that we dwell and we think and we put these things in front of us, the more we go, I can trust that God. The object of our trust in the simple prayer is God. So we must be men and women who constantly remind ourselves of his character, of his nature. And so here are a couple of thoughts as we think about integrating this simple prayer into our lives. God, you're good and I trust you. The first is this. We cannot allow our circumstances to dictate our understanding of the nature and character of God. We cannot allow our circumstances to dictate our understanding of the nature and character of God. Stephen Kendrick in his book, Defined Who God Says You Are, says this, that a lie will feel true if you choose to believe it. Your feelings will follow your heart's beliefs. A constant journey of reminding our heart that God is good, that he can be trusted, that he is trustworthy, right? Just because there's pain or a feeling of discomfort doesn't mean that whatever you're engaged in isn't good for you. I hate school. It's good for you. And it's good for me to have some separation from you. It's good for you, right? We're 21 days into this and some of y'all are like, JD, working out is for the birds. Side note, I probably wouldn't wait 11 months to try it again. Keep working on it, okay? I would argue that in working out, if there isn't pain or discomfort, you're doing it wrong. And if you want to increase your health span in life, it's going to require some discomfort. You're going to have to eat less Chick-fil-A, although it's blessed by the Lord. I'm just saying. You're going to have to eat better. You're going to have to work out. You have to go for a walk. You have to stretch. Focus on mobility. It's not a curse word. You have to do some things that are uncomfortable. Just because they're uncomfortable doesn't mean they're not good. I have uh, enjoyed being in a relationship with my wife now for 15 years. And we got married really young, so every bad habit I have is her fault. Okay? <laughs> and I know that she loves me. I know that she's for me. She has demonstrated that over and 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 over again. And I know that because she reminds me of that. (laughs) But when I'm tired and she says things to me and I get upset, when she doesn't meet my needs or when she's tired or had a bad day and flippantly says something, I have two ways to interpret that interaction. You're a liar! No good. Sorry, sucker. How dare you treat me like that? Or, or I can remind myself that Kelly is for me, not against me. Kelly's on the same team as me. Kelly is caring a lot right now. Kelly chose me 15 years ago, and she chose me again this morning and this afternoon because she didn't change the locks. (laughs) Evidence, my friends, evidence matters. The same is true of the Lord. The enemy will use our circumstances to call into question the character and nature of God, and we cannot allow our emotions to dictate what we believe and know to be true. Here's the second idea that every attack on the character of God 
has to be confronted. I know that we live in a non-confrontational society. I get it. My personality is like, let's get the gloves. Let's do it. Paul, writing to the early church in 2 Corinthians, reminds them that this isn't a cakewalk. This isn't an easy journey that you and I are in in following the Lord. In fact, he used some very vivid, war, violent, combative language to describe our responsibility in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That our simple prayer of trust is really a weapon of our warfare. That when we say, God, you are good and I trust you, we're taking captive thoughts that would come against the character and nature of God. We are fighting and waging war against the enemy in our mind. God, the situation is painful. I don't understand why this is happening. But I choose to believe that you're good and I choose to trust you. God, in the middle of this miscarriage, God, in the middle of this divorce, the situation at work, my finances, my kids, God, all of this is painful and hurting. I'm in disbelief and anguish. God, this is real pain. I don't know how I'm going to make it. But you're good. And I choose to trust you with my pain and my heart. And God, I don't know how or when or where things are going to get better, but God, you're good choose to trust you even though I can't see a way forward. J.D., I want to pray the prayer. I want to believe that he's good, but what's that look like? David in Psalm 42 is having a moment where his internal truth was off with his external reality. So David finds himself in Psalm 42 verse 11 speaking to his heart. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You have got to come back to the space of remembrance and speaking truth to your heart. God, you are good, and I trust you. I face these moments often in my life where I have some moments of doubt from disorientation. And I'm going to walk you through some passages of Scripture this morning and the powerful truths that they remind me of. And I'm going to encourage you to get out your phone and take some pictures of the screen. Not check your social media because we're all off of that right now because we're pursuing the Lord. Okay? How do I know he's good? I know that God is good because I was a sinner. I was born into a life marked by sin. I sinned. I fell short of the glory of God, the standard of holiness and righteousness. 
I may be a good person, but if we were to put up all my thoughts from the last month on the screen, the hidden moments of my life, and we would all look at them, you would see where I have failed to live up to the standard of perfect holiness and righteousness. Good people don't go to heaven. The only way in is through Jesus Christ. God, because he is just, requires justice. He had to have payment for my sin. Atonement had to be made. But God, because he is good, sent his son, fully God and fully man, to pay my penalty for my sins. Jesus paid my debt. He is my atonement and he took my place because he is good. And God, because he is good and just, accepted Christ's sacrifice as payment for my sin and he set me free. Before I even knew who God was, his goodness had already made a way for me to know him and be set free from enduring his wrath for my sin. That before a thought was thought about me by my parents or my cells began to multiply in the womb, God, because of his goodness, had already made a way. I was God's enemy, but because of his goodness, he reconciled me back into relationship with me. God, because he is good before he even formed the earth out of nothing, made a way to him and to spend eternity with him. God, because he is good, made a way for me, his enemy, to have access to his heart. Because God is good, he set me free from sin. I no longer have to live according to my flesh. Because God is good, he showed me grace. Because God is good, he set me free from living in sin and gives me his power, grace, to live a life in line with holiness and righteousness. Because God is good, he gave me the gift of eternal life and has made a way for me to live in holiness and nearness to him in this life. Because God is good, he takes every single moment of my life and he works them all for good according to his purpose. Because God is good, he is present in every moment of my life working. Because God is good, he made me a victor over the troubles I face. Because God is good, he holds me in his hand and nothing can separate me from his love. Because God is good, someone like me who used to be his enemy is now his friend, now a son, now an heir, now with access to his goodness and his kindness, adopted into his family and held near. Because God is good, he fights to keep me in his love and promises that nothing, no one, and no thing can separate me from his love. You ask me, JD, how do you know that God is good? And the answer is simple. I know, believe, and trust that God is good because of the cross. It's the cross. That is how I know that God is good at all times. Regardless of what my situations and emotions say, God is good. Because my eternal standing before a holy, righteous, just God has been changed out of his kindness and his goodness. Having nothing to do with me, only him, his character and his nature. Would you stand with me? We're gonna take communion. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you probably don't understand what communion is and these elements mean nothing to you. But for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, who are disciples and following and working to live out our lives in pursuit of Jesus, these things mean everything to us. Because when we take communion, we are reminded that God is good. That even though he did not have to save us, he chose. 
He chose out of his love to send his one and only son that while we were still sinners to make a way for us to live in relationship with him. That out of his goodness, not my goodness, his goodness, he chose me in my sinfulness to save me by sending his son to take that place on the cross. Where I should have been, he took it in my stead. His body was broken like this cracker into pieces. And we take this cracker this morning as a reminder of what he endured on that cross to make us whole. Let's take this cracker. If you turn your cup over, this juice is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sin, of your sin and my sin. It was blood that was shed to seal a new covenant where you and I could enter into a forever relationship with a holy and righteous God. It was shed because he is good and he is trustworthy. Let's take the cup. If you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, it's a really simple but costly process. Simple in that it's prayer. Costly in that it will cost you your entire life to follow Jesus. I would be remiss to not tell you the cost of following Jesus. That as disciples, we're called to daily die to ourselves. Daily. 